0: Um, and before I get into what I'm going to share with you, uh, I should tell you immediately that there is a mistake in the notes. As soon as the last one came off and I started folding them, I saw it in the very first line right after the title. If you would just draw an arrow between the parenthesied words, they're in the wrong place. You, you can probably all see that now really clearly, right? Yeah. I stuck those in at the, at the last moment in my notes to clarify what I was saying. And I, I clearly did not do that, all right, <laughs> clearly did not, all right, so just make that switch there, the uh, um, spiritual and worldly, just swap those two and you'll, you'll have it right. So we're in a series about covenant, and today I want to make covenant really practical for us in some ways, but it's going to be a little while before I get to the, the covenant part, so I'm going to kind of, what I'm doing is I'm setting up what I want to share with you, all right, does that make sense? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in here. Father, we are asking right now that as we consider what you would speak to us, that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds to the things that you want to bring forth. And we trust you, Holy Spirit, have your way in us, that we might walk more fully in the things that you want us to, and that we might see more and more with your eyes the way that you want us to and we trust you to do that because you're faithful amen amen Amen. so in our culture uh, overall we tend to divide things between sacred and secular things that are spiritual and things that are worldly and when we distinguish between those, what we generally mean is by sacred, we're talking about the things that, that we might say are related to God, things that are holy. And we would, we would, say, we would at least think that those things are more important, those are the, the more significant kind of things. Secular, on the other hand, we would refer to as just like the normal things of life. They don't really have a lot necessarily connection to God, if you will, we see those as less important and less significant. And please understand, I'm not saying that what I'm telling you right here is true. I'm saying this is how many people think in our culture, and we may even have a dimension of this in us. So to keep going in what I was saying, um, sort of kind of flesh that out, we would see, say, church leaders as spiritual, but business people, no. We, we would say that, that prayer is sacred, but work is not. You with me? Um, The physical realm oftentimes we think of as bad, but the the spiritual heavenly realm is good. Uh, A man named Jeremy Shepard, he wrote this. In the introduction to worldview course at Dallas Baptist University, students are asked to interview someone using James Sire's seven basic worldview questions. For example, what is ultimately uh, ultimate reality? What is the meaning of human history? I was surprised that during both of my required interviews, the person that I had chosen asked me, is it okay if I answer with my faith? In other words, the interviewee was really saying, can I use my faith, which is over there, to answer your question, which is over here? That seems crazy to me. I mean, if, if faith is going to impact your answer, why are you even asking if you should use it? It should be part of who we are. But that idea that that our lives are separated into those sacred and secular categories is widespread. And this isn't isn't a new idea. It actually has its roots in Gnosticism. Now, I remember when Pastor Nick used to talk about Gnosticism, and I would always try to reach back and remember what that meant. So I'm just going to explain it real simply. Basically, um, the Gnostics believed that Jesus did not come as a human being. He was only a spiritual being because, from their perspective, anything physical was bad. So anything of matter was bad, all right? And so if he came as a human being, then he would have been bad. So he couldn't have done that. Does that, does that make sense? Now, I will admit that the, the sacred-secular divide is not exactly the same as Gnosticism, and yet they have similar roots. They would both say that the, the spiritual is higher, it's more important than the physical, the Apostle John addressed that Gnostic heresy in his second letter, 2 John, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. A decei- I mean, he's being pretty strong here, a deceiver and the Antichrist, because he recognizes that Jesus clearly did come. That whole idea of separating secular and sacred, that the physical is bad, is clearly not true from what John is saying here. So for us today, the place that, in Christianity, I guess in general, the place that we would see this, this separation most would be in employment. See, we see secular employment as just kind of, that's what we do. It's a, it's a nice thing where we can earn some money to get on re- with real life. We, we might have the opportunity to share our faith there, but that's, that's probably the only real redeeming value for, for having an actual job. Now, w- we might say that there are some, some employment situations that have some intrinsic value, things like teaching or medicine, for example, all right? But for the most part, we don't think that most actual labor, actual work, is really all that important. But a lot of Christians would say that what the, what the real idea would be would be full-time ministry. Full-time vocational ministry, that would be the thing. Because then you get to use your abilities, you get to use your time, your energies, pouring into the kingdom of God in a real way, that a way that secular employment wouldn't afford, if you will. So there's lots of, of christians who dream of becoming a full-time christian worker they would even say that anything less than that is really not all it's kind of second rate all right and i I will say that it's a noble calling to be in full-time ministry which is why a lot of um christians esteem christian workers Uh, a lot of times that they have sacrificed all especially if you've been on the mission field sacrificed a lot that that's a good thing they're making a difference but if that's our, our, our thinking, that, that's our, our backdrop, our th- think about this. I'm not, again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, what I've just said. I'm just saying that's the way we think. So if that's our backdrop, if that's our mindset, then obviously secular work really doesn't count for all that much. Oh, sure, you can go and do a good job and, and do, do the best that you can, but it re- doesn't really count. It's kind of a means to an end. And a lot of Christians everything that I've just articulated right there would say, yeah, that's right, that, that's, that's good, that's the way it is. But my question is, is that really right? Is that really the way it is? See, that, that idea of splitting life into sacred and secular is, it doesn't appear in God's story of creation. In fact, God starts off doing actual work in creating the universe. He was the designer, the builder, the, the gardener, everything but, but he doesn't even stop there because after that he takes the, the seemingly crazy step of involving human beings in working with him as his co-laborers, if you will. If you remember, he, he commissioned Adam and Eve to be the caretakers of this new creation. That, that, that doesn't sound like a second-rate calling to me. <laughs> Think about this. Do you suppose that when God gave that role to Adam and Eve that Adam could have thought, oh God, really? I, I was kind of hoping for something more spiritual. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're laughing because it's so crazy and yet so often we take that same mindset into different arenas in our lives. See, the fact is that the creation story doesn't allow for that sacred-secular split. In fact, we consistently read in Genesis... It was good. It was good. It was good. And, and I understand it was tainted because of sin. I get that. The fall ch- kind of changed things. But the original design that included people working with their hands is, in actual labor was good. I, I was preparing for this message. I came across this quote. I think it's a great quote. There's no word for spiritual in the Hebrew Old Testament. Were they not spiritual people? In the Hebrew worldview... Everything was spiritual. There was no need to distinguish between spiritual and secular because no part of their existence was secular. See, this is, this is again, something that I've harped on probably, I don't know, like the last four or five times that I, I've preached here. The idea that we in our culture have a very different mindset than the people to whom scripture was originally written. See, we have a tendency to separate that sacred and secular, but they didn't. Very different way of thinking, and we need to think more like they did because that's the the mindset that God had had granted to them because that's the way God thinks if you look at Scripture. Um, Not long ago, I I heard about a a Christian speaker who regularly asks his audience, think about what you did yesterday. What percentage was secular and what percentage was spiritual? And he said that never once in asking that question has he had anybody say 100% spiritual. He said, but here's the deal. They should. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. everything that we do can be seen as spiritual. It's all within the realm of the kingdom of God. Whatever you do, working, playing, gardening, cooking, whatever, everything, it's all for God's glory. And he clearly made us to do those things, to be involved in those things. Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Word or deed, do everything. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? In his book, Garden City, John Mark Comer said it this way, The cosmic, gargantuan, 24-7 kingdom of God cannot be shrunk down to a few hundred people singing songs in a nice building for an hour every weekend. He's right. Our whole lives should be viewed in the context of the kingdom of God. Someone recently posted on Facebook, I believe church buildings are meant for praising God, but so are 2 a.m. car rides, showers, coffee shops, the gym, conversations with friends, grocery stores, and more. Don't let a building confine your faith. What a great statement. Don't let a building confine your faith. It's not just for here. It's for out there. It's part of who we are. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s. One of my favorite statements. He said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all His. We are all His, no matter what we're doing. Think about this. This whole idea um, of of God involved in everything that we do, everything that we are, was clearly communicated symbolically um, in in the Old Testament when the Israelites were in the wilderness. If you remember, when they would set up their camp, God said, and he told which tribes were supposed to be where, but there were three tribes that were supposed to set up to the east, three tribes that were supposed to set up to the west, 3 to the north and 3 to the south, all 12 tribes. Anybody remember what was right in the middle? Amen. The the tabernacle the, the, the presence of God, if you will, that's where God chose to dwell. And, and what he's showing them is that right at the center of everything they do, no matter what they're involved in, whether it's taking care of livestock or cooking or nursing their babies or swapping manna recipes or getting married or transacting business or whatever, that right in the middle of that, there is God. And that's how we should think. That he's there with us in all that we do. He was symbolically showing them that he's there. He's with them. You know, maybe the, I think, maybe the best illustration of this idea is try to imagine um, time before the fall. You know, Adam and Eve were not, Adam and Eve were not sitting around playing harps. They were cultivating plants. They they cooked meals, they ate, they talked. They made love. They went for walks. They, they slept. All of that before the fall. And it was good. Are you with me? So to suggest that certain things, and, and, and because of the fall, I'm going to say certain legitimate activities, All right, because obviously because of sin, there are things that, that we shouldn't be involved in. But to say that certain legitimate activities are beneath God's best is simply wrong. To say that that those legitimate activities, that that some are holy and some are not, I think it misses the heart and intent of God totally. I heard a, a college student a while back say, I believe God is calling me to business. I love that because that is every bit from the heart of God, a calling as somebody who goes into full-time vocational ministry. And God's going to be with him in all that he does in that position. Great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this, "'To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular, everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him.'" He sits down to a meal and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. And he's right. If Christ is in us and the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us, how can anything we do be unspiritual? Let, let me hit this from a, a slightly different angle. I heard Chuck Swindoll recently say, I've never, seen, uh, I've never seen wealth make anyone more generous. And so what he's saying is that if, if you're not a generous person, then having money isn't going to change that. Okay. So put that into the context of what we're talking about. If you see a sacred-secular divide in life, then you're likely to be stingy in your life because what happens over here in the secular world is different than the sacred. It's not, it's not going to help you. Um, it's going to make it worse, actually, in that context. And, and seeing all of life um, as being combined, as, as not having that divide, really really changes how we make decisions, how we do things. Has anybody ever noticed the uh, the the little park over in Festus out in front of Home Depot? There's a there's a picnic table with a little pavilion over it. Do you know why that's there? The Gannon family, Dennis Gannon is now the uh, the county commissioner, all right? His family, his father and family, um, owned all of that land. You know, the 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 Home Depot and the Schnooks and the Hoods and uh, uh, the the White Castle and Panera and on down that side, down to the YMCA. All of that was theirs. And when they decided to develop it, because they're Christians, they didn't want any seedy businesses coming in there. And so there is a law in Festus that there cannot be any adult shops, let's put it that way, um, within a certain distance of a park. So they built this park, donated it to the city of Festus so there can't be anything over there that would go against Christian values. See, They were, they were practically living out their Christian life by making that happen there. I think that's, that's, that's powerful. They were extending the kingdom of God and I think in, in some ways keeping the darkness at bay by doing that. Are you with me? Uh, I'm, I think I shared a while back some of you would remember Roy Libby he used to uh, be at the Christian Outreach School of Ministries was here for a while uh, Roy was an engineer at Kodak and uh, this was in the heyday of Kodak when Kodak was just like coming up with all kinds of stuff anybody remember actual film and cameras uh, <laughs> um, it was, it was a, a huge thing and my son is saying no he doesn't remember film and cameras. <laughs> thanks David we'll talk later um uh, but he was a Christian, and lots of other engineers there at Kodak were Christians. And when they would run into a problem, they would get together and pray. And Roy said that every single time, God gave them the answer. I think that's amazing. But here's the, here's the deal. Think about this. Did God really care about technological breakthroughs at Kodak? I think yes! Yes! Because his people were there extending his kingdom into that setting and that environment. They didn't see a difference between sacred and secular. They were believers in Christ and they were living it out right then and there. It's not just what happens here in this building that counts. It's not just what we might call ministry, if you will. Try a different angle. Think for a minute about people in the Bible who we would call kind of high-profile people, all right, not just the ones that, you know, if I say the name, you'd go, who is that? Um, High-profile people who were not in ministry per se. So think about um, people like Joseph and Daniel and Esther to start off with. All of them were in what we would call politics today. That's a role that we don't often associate with with God's people, right? And and those three were in high-level roles in places where they, as Jewish people, were definitely in the minority, And so there they were. um, They struggled with what does it mean in this setting for us to, to live out our faith in a place where it seems like, if I can say it this way, where lesser gods are reigning. And they did it. And there are people in our culture today who are in public office who struggle with the same thing. You know, I can't help but wonder if we... If we didn't have that sacred secular divide, if we, you know, those people that, that the, the the guy from Dallas Baptist University asked the questions, Can, is it okay to use my faith? If we didn't think like that, of course it's okay to. If we thought that we were all together, all one, sacred and secular, it doesn't make any difference. There is no divide. Wouldn't that automatically have to change our culture? Amen. If we're doing all that we do to the glory of God. Think about, think about uh, Nehemiah, high-profile guy in the Old Testament. He's often lauded as being a, a man of prayer, uh, apparently a dynamic and effective leader. He was a justice maker. But we can easily forget that, that these great qualities that are in this guy, that his main role was to manage a, a difficult and demanding building project. Yes, he's a spiritual man, but his job is he's the project manager for rebuilding Jerusalem. He had been the the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And now he's the project manager for this huge building project. Neither one of those is what we might refer to as a spiritual role, right? And yet God used Nehemiah to help bring about his, his plans, his purposes. Think of Jesus. Jesus was apparently 30 years old when he started his public ministry, 33 when he died on the cross. So think about it. What was he doing for the last 10, 15 years before he started his public ministry? Scripture says he was a carpenter. Actually, there's some question today about whether that carpenter is actually the right word. Um, Apparently, more modern understanding says that he was a builder, Either way, he built with wood, he built with something, he built built stuff, all right? Jesus, the the holy son of God, didn't put aside the idea of working with his hands. He willingly jumped in there. He didn't have that sacred-secular divide in his mind. Think about this. What if, what if the here here is, is God incarnate come to Earth? What if God the Father had caused Jesus to speak fluently at one year of age and perform miracles? I mean, the evangelism possibilities right there are endless, right? But he didn't. Instead, Jesus just grew up and grew into his father's business, and he clearly had no in his mind. No taking apart, no dichotomy of sacred and secular. I mean, think about this. If there really is supposed to be that sacred-secular divide, wouldn't that be clearly depicted in the life of the Holy Son of God? But it's not. It's clearly not. John Calvin challenged all believers to work, to perform, to develop, to progress, to change, to choose, to be active, and to overcome until the day of their death or the return of the Lord. To work, to perform, to develop, to, to use what God has given you. Go after it here in this world. Colossians 3.23 and following. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ, and it's in the context of work. So he's saying you're serving the Lord, con- uh, the Lord Christ in your work. That's what it says. That's what he's saying here. Colossians 1.10, the, the message translation, fascinating. It says this, We pray that you'll live well for the master, making him proud of you as you work hard in his orchard. As you learn more and more of how God works, you will learn how to do your work. As you learn more and more how God works, you will learn to do your work. What a great statement. When we recognize that work is not just some some secular idea, but something that God created and something that God is involved in, it changes everything. Somebody said all of what we do needs to be connected with who we are in Christ. That's true because in Christ we are holy. We are set apart no matter the activity, we're his. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Paul, he didn't seem embarrassed or try to hide the idea that he was a tent maker. Acts chapter 20 Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He's on his journey back to Jerusalem. They've stopped at, ah, oh, boy. Milita? Is that the word that I don't, can't remember. Um, but the Ephesian elders have come there. He's talking to them. And uh, beginning in verse 33, Paul is saying, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves that know that these hands... And I can just see Paul. These hands have min- ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way... We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul is saying that he worked hard in making tents to supply for his own needs as well as for the needs of others, which shouldn't surprise us at all because earlier in the book of Acts, that's what we see we see believers supplying for others out of their own resources, and Paul—that's exactly what Paul is saying. He said through his tent making, he's been working, supplying for his own needs, supplying for the needs of others. But that ability to supply for his own needs and the needs of others came through work. He was using his hands. He was doing things. You know, he had some abilities, some 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 uh, uh, a knack for for being able to do this kind of thing, and so he did it. And it was what supplied for his needs. Now, he wasn't against taking money for his preaching ministry and, and helping out in that way. That was, that was fine. Um, but Paul didn't, different, didn't differentiate there. He's saying, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm, I'm helping to supply it. You know, Think about what he said there in that, that Acts 20 passage. He's really saying, I've been an example for you. He's saying, you guys, this is what I want you to do. I want you to work. I want you to work hard to supply for your needs and for the needs of others. That's how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. And Keep in mind that it was Paul who said, whatever we do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He clearly had no distinction in his mind between his, his preaching and his tent making. It wasn't that one was sacred and one was secular. No, that was all sacred. It was all holy because Paul was holy. It was significant because God was in him. The Lord was with him. It so the great reformer Martin Luther who introduced, actually reintroduced the idea of the priesthood of all believers. It was Luther that said that all believers had what he referred to as a priestly calling in whatever role they undertake. Luther, understand, was not a fan of what the Roman Catholic priesthood had become at that point. But he also understood that the, the sacred-secular divide was a false narrative. It was not the way it was supposed to be quote that's often attributed to Luther might not be his. It says this, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. All work that is morally acceptable has value and has significance. No matter what our culture, you know, our culture, our society has this tendency to say, oh, this job is really important and this one maybe not so much. Um, God doesn't see the same way that we do. And if it's a legitimate occupation, in God's sight, it's all the same. It doesn't make any difference. It's all holy because we're holy. See, in part, this having this dichotomy of sacred and secular, it's because we have the wrong understanding of the kingdom of God. If God's total concern is simply to see souls saved, well, then, of course, those who preach, those who run crusades, those who do mission work, whatever, those people are more important. But, but, if we understand what Jesus said, that giving a cup of cold water to somebody who's thirsty is extending the kingdom of God. That changes everything. If the kingdom of God really is among you, and among you when you go to your work tomorrow, then that has to change our mindset about what we're all about as his followers. It's not just a Sunday morning activity, it's part of our daily life. Our dear family friend Micah Motter was over visiting us recently because he was in town for the wedding, and um, he made a statement that I quickly jotted down. Uh, he said that he, he believes that God says, do life with me. That that's really God's heart, that he wants us just to do life with him. Have him involved in everything we, tr- we do. The, the truth is that everything I am, everything I have belongs to God. Why? Here we go, because of the covenant. See, the covenant says we are his. His. We belong to him. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to kind of hammer that, that idea for a, a minute. My, uh, my friend, Leanne Albrecht, she is a, a Christian songwriter. One of her songs, the chorus says this, the talking to God says, I am in you, you are in me, and we are one. I am in you, you are in me, and we are one. All that I have is yours, and all that you have is mine. We are one. If we really understand that, that idea, then we can't have that sacred secular division in our minds if the holy god is residing in us if we're part of him then my goodness there is no secular i'm guessing we all know the passage from 1 peter 2:9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession I want to kind of hone in on that royal priesthood thing there for a minute. God's people, you and me, have been made a royal priesthood. A priest is one who stands before God, stands between God and the people. In the, in the Bible, the idea of a priest was, was he brings this one down and this one up to, to cause them to, to meet together. So if we're a priesthood, that's what we get to do. We're the ones who can help reconcile people to God and and to to help them find him and bring his kingdom into whatever situation we're in. And this whole priesthood idea is not a one-time thing in the Bible. Revelation chapter one, very similar language. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. We've been made priests. Same thing in Revelation 5. You, this is the, the 24 elders calling out, you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, so this idea of us being priests, of us collectively being a priesthood, is not a one-time thing. It's, it's throughout the New Testament. But what we often miss is that it's actually based on an Old Testament passage. And that Old Testament passage is part of the covenant that God made with his people. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 3, Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, so follow me here. God originally made the covenant with Adam and Eve. Later, he extended and kind of expanded the, the covenant when he did, uh, made it with Abraham. Abraham. And then still later did the same thing with the people of Israel at Sinai. And that's where this passage from Exodus 19 is happening. He tells them he's making them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, he is setting them, as, them aside for himself. They're special. They're, they're dedicated to God. Now, that didn't mean that they... They had the same role as Aaron and his, his offspring, okay? Those guys had a special role dedicated. They were the official intermediaries, all right? But all of the people were given the title of priests at that point. A few weeks ago, when I preached um, toward the, the end of the service, I talked about the, the transactional power of of blessing, that something happens, something changes when a blessing is spoken. Kind of like when the preacher announces husband and wife, all right? And a minute before, that wasn't true. Now, all of a sudden, it is. Um, So when God spoke the covenant to his people, that's what he was doing. He was speaking a new reality into his people. In a real sense, they would be different from that point on Because they were now priests before God. They all, every single one of them, youngest to the oldest, had a role in helping one another and even others outside of their immediate Jewish context um, toward God. They were priests. And that's the role that you and I now have. We help others toward God. We, We pray for people and encourage them toward God. We also help reveal His kingdom in everything that we do. And that's regardless of our occupation. You're with me. You might be a project manager like Nehemiah. You might be a builder like Jesus. You might be a, a public official like uh, Daniel or Joseph or any other number of possibilities. You could be a soldier or a housewife or a bookkeeper or an administrator or a teacher or a factory worker Keep going as long as you want to. However many fill in the blanks you want there. The title doesn't matter. What matters is that you realize that even in that role, you are a priest. You have been made a priest. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to God. And as such, you're his priest who helps point people toward him and bring the kingdom of God into the midst of all that you do. You can be the one who helps... Carry the burdens of others. You can be the one who loves people when they're at their best or at their worst. You can be the one who's ready to share the love of Christ with those who need it, which, by the way, is everybody. You can be the one who extends the kingdom of God through your work and through your life. Revelation 11.15 The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. I want you to think about that verse for a minute. You know, the kingdoms and democracies and companies and corporations and neighborhoods and communities of this world are not going to become part of the kingdom of God if we have that secular, sacred divide in our minds. Not going to happen. But if we see everything that we do as bringing glory to Him, everything that we do as Him empowering us to do it, you know what? That changes everything. Think of it this way, the, the God of the universe, the Holy One is residing in you. How could we possibly think that anything we do is secular? Can't be, huh? Everything is sacred if God is in us, and he is in our lives. God made a covenant with his people. He would make us holy. He would make us royal priests before him, and that's what he's done. So God is interested in every area of our lives, It can all be for his glory regardless of what it is. And that's true because of the covenant that God made with his people. We are his, he's in us, he's with us. Whatever we do is holy. Pastor Timothy Keller said it like this, all work has dignity because it reflects God's image in us and also because the material creation which we are called to care for is good. And he's right. Let me add an addendum here now even though there really is no divide between sacred and secular, the way that we're empowered to do everything that we do to the glory of God is by Him, right? In other words, His Spirit is leading us and guiding us and that should be happening whether we're gathered like this or on our jobs or at the library or shopping or driving our car or whatever. So so the question then becomes how can that How can that happen in an increasing way? In other words, how how can we more clearly hear his voice, knowing what he's saying all the time, to be those priests that he wants us to be? Well, that comes through things like prayer and reading and studying his word and meditation. See, even though there is no sacred-secular divide, there is a sacred a spiritual aspect of us that needs to to be fed in order to buoy up everything else. Are you with me? And so we need to be involved in those things in order to be listening for His voice to be the priest that He wants us to be. Now those two column things there at the end of your notes, uh, I I came across those. I just thought they were interesting. So a dualist is somebody who believes in the secular-sacred divide. A holist is somebody who doesn't, who... Thinks it's all one, all right. So, from the dualist perspective, work is a necessary evil. From the holist perspective, it's God's calling. From the dualist perspective, work is a bad thing. Holist would say it's good. Work would be not an ethical matter, but um, we would say that work is, is is there's excellence expected in what we do. Same thing with culture. Culture, they would say that they withdraw from it. No, we say we we transform it. They would say it's separate from God's plan, but we think it's God's mandate. Think about the, the Old Testament when the Israelites were in exile and God told them that they were supposed to build houses and plant gardens and marry. They're supposed to be in that culture and transform it because they were being the priesthood right there where they were. That's, that's our calling. So I, I put that in because I just think it's practical for us to think differently um, and, and not have that sacred-secular divide. But, Think uh, more in terms of being a, a, a holist. You're a priest, one who belongs to the kingdom of God and one who brings the kingdom of God into every situation that you're in because you are holy and you are his. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have, through your covenant, brought us into your family that through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have fulfilled what you have promised and really and truly made us priests to bring you to this world, to cause your kingdom to come to bear in every situation, regardless of what that looks like, big or little, in our, in our employment, in our social interactions, all the way through. Lord, today if we have had a wrong mindset, we're asking that you would change that in us, cause us to think biblically, to think correctly, to to get rid of that divide in our minds, but instead to see our whole lives as bringing honor and glory to you, to see our whole lives as being holy unto you. And Lord, would you more and more cause us to walk into more fully that reality that we might live in it Day by day. And we trust you to do that because you are good. Amen.